Now, I'll tell you a story. Uh, when I went to Wake Village, so that well, I was a lawyer, and then we were members at First Baptist Eastland. Then God called us in the ministry, and where we went to the church we went to is in Texarkana. And when I got there, I said, what are my jobs? Well, you're the associate pastor. You're going to lead the worship, and you're also going to do senior adults. So, oh, that's good. What do the senior adults do? And this senior adult group was extremely active. So they had a group called Evergreen. That was their senior adult group, and Evergreen had been active. They'd been old since, I think, the 1980s, but they were still going strong in the 2000s. And so we had Evergreen Group, and Evergreen Group would meet, I I think we met once a month. We had our Evergreen meeting, and then we went on trips and things like that. But at every Evergreen meeting, we played bingo. And except for the people that thought it was gambling, they abstained and came in after the bingo. But uh, what I would do is I would go get some prizes. I would usually go get scented candles, something, you know, uh, little trinkets at the dollar store. That would be the bingo prizes. And yet, anytime anybody, as we were playing, anytime anybody got a bingo, there was a lady that would look at me, and I should say there were probably several ladies that would look at me, and they would look at me and say, go check his card. And they, <laughs> they did not want anybody getting a smelly candle unless they had earned it, unless they could prove that they really had a bingo and, you know, those words, uh, prove it, are kind of like a, a, a gauntlet that's thrown down, really, in any situation. They wanted to see the proof. Uh, did they have all the right uh, numbers covered up on the bingo card? I remember teaching a sixth grade, or actually it was eighth grade science class when I was teaching at a private Christian school in Nashville. And, of course, sad to hear of the a uh, private school that had the shooting this week. Just what, what a tragic situation. But thought, you know, uh, we taught at a private school in, in, up there in Nashville. Just such a hard thing to imagine uh, something like that happening. We taught at the Park Avenue Christian School. And I taught a science class. And in the science class one day, the kids came in and they had all watched a show that had been on the Fox network that was basically claiming that the moon landing was a hoax. And, these, and all the kids came in, and they, they really honestly had been convinced by that documentary. Do you all remember that documentary? It was in the, probably the late 90s, and it was a big deal. And so these kids came in like, no, no, we didn't land on the moon. So I'm in the science class. I'm like, yes, we landed on the moon. And the kids said, prove it. And I thought, well, how in the world am I going to prove to these eighth graders who aren't that smart anyway? Uh, <clears throat> no offense to the eighth graders in the room. Uh, <laughs> How am I going to prove that we landed on the moon? And so I thought and thought and thought, and I found a scientist that worked for NASA at the Middle Tennessee State University, and I called him up, and I said, listen, can you give me some way that, that, it, like, that we have some way to prove that, that we landed on the moon? And he said, yes, at each of the lunar sites, there are these arrays of mirrors, and you can basically, if you know where the landing site is, you can shoot the, uh, a laser beam at that array of mirrors and it will come back. And that's how we're measuring the, the distance between the earth and the moon. And, and that's changing ever so often. But those sites where we said we landed, there's evidence that we've been there. And so I took, I was like, I, I've got the, you know, I've got the, the, the dagger, I've got the golden arrow, whatever you would say. I've taken this evidence back to the kids. 
we've got these mirrors on the moon. And uh, they said, well, anybody could have put those there with a, with a robot. And they didn't believe me. But uh, I, was, I was convinced that we had landed on the moon, but the kids wanted proof. That's one kind of proof, right? There's a claim, and then you provide evidence to support your claim. There's also another kind of way you can prove it, that you can prove something. And I went down the rabbit hole on this one. You ever do that? You get on Google or YouTube and you just start looking up one thing and it leads you to another thing and another thing and another thing. All right. Well, I learned about a place called the Milford Proving Ground uh, that is in, I don't even know if I I looked up where it was. I think it's in uh, 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 Michigan. And General Motors bought this place in uh, 1923 and it's a huge site where they test all of the General Motors products, all the new technology, uh, the different types of materials. Um, It's heavily guarded because they're afraid people are going to come in, spies are going to come in and steal the ideas that General Motors is working up. Uh, They They work a lot of times only at night because they don't want people flying drones over and watching what they're doing. Uh, Out here at this place, they call it the Proving Ground, and GM has over 81,000 employees, but only 100 of them have passed the driving test required to drive at the Proving Grounds where they uh, race these cars and run them uh, through all these tremendous uh, tests uh, to prove or to demonstrate that the technology will hold up, that it will be, it will be roadworthy. This is where you might say these new products that come out and the new models and all that kind of stuff, they uh, develop their track record at the proving ground. They have a place called the Black Lake, which is a slab of black asphalt that if you look at it on a satellite photo, which I did and it didn't look like this, but they said if... Uh, apparently there are some pictures where it looks, it's such a gigantic slab of asphalt that it looks like lake, that it's so huge. Uh, it's the size of 59 football fields, and it's one of the largest vehicle dynamic pads in the world, and they test whether a car can handle out there on that, uh, what they call the Black Lake. Uh, they've shot movies out there. That's where guardrails were invented. Uh, there's just all sorts of, they have, they have a building where they test the prototypes, and they can put a car into a simulator, and they can simulate all sorts of different driving conditions, even what it would be like if you were to drive your brand new GM vehicle on the surface of the moon, and they can tell you how it would handle on the moon. So it's just fascinating that they do, they prove these cars up, they prove up this technology, they demonstrate that the technology can do what they say it can do. As we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 today, Paul is all about proving things in the last chapters of these books. And specifically in chapter 13, Paul says this is it. This is the last word. He's wrapping up his letter and he says this is the last word before I'm coming to you. And Paul wants to prove to them that he's an apostle. Paul wants to prove to them that Christ is in him. So that's one kind of proof. But he's also demanding that they prove or that they demonstrate through their actions that Christ is in them in the way they respond to Paul. So here's the point of the sermon. Here's the big idea or the aim of this text. 
Those who claim Christ don't reject his lordship. That's the argument here. If you claim Christ, you don't reject the lordship of Christ. Isn't that a strange idea that someone would say, I'm saved. Well, how does the Bible say that you're saved? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, if you confess Jesus as Lord, why would someone who says Jesus is Lord, that's what a Christian is, reject the lordship of Jesus? So a Christian, those who claim Christ, we don't reject his lordship. Rather, our lives prove that he is Lord. The life of a Christian is not about rejecting the lordship of Christ, but proving that Jesus is Lord. This is uh, this, uh, the theme of proof runs through this entire chapter. Indeed, probably the last uh, three or four chapters of the book. And Paul is talking about his track record in these last few chapters. He wants the church to take a close look at their track record and to prove that they are all who they are saying that they are. Paul is the apostle. An apostle is the authority. The word apostle means messenger. How was the apostle a messenger? The the apostles were delivering to the church before the Bible was written down. The apostles are delivering to the churches God's word. They were the authority giving God's word to the people. That's the literal meaning of a messenger of the word. Paul had the words of God. Paul was bringing to the Corinthian church the words of God, and they were choosing to reject him. That means when you rejected the one who had the words of God, that you're rejecting God. When you rejected the, the, the Lord's messenger, you were rejecting the Lord. True, true Christians don't want to do that. If you're a true Christian in here today, I'm sure you're not saying, oh, I just love rejecting the Lord's lordship. That's not something that's, any Christ, that's in any Christian's heart. We don't want to do that. What happens when we do that? We repent. We know it's a sin to reject the lordship of Christ. And so when we find ourselves doing that, we go the other way. We turn from that, that sin and we repent and we say, yes, the Lord is right and I'm going to do as he says. And so true Christians on the whole can examine our lives And we can see that our lives line up with our confession. Now maybe you've had a rough week. Or maybe you're struggling with something right now and you're saying, I don't feel like a very strong Christian. I've given this illustration before. And it's true. You could follow me around today, even after I'm on the the high of having preached a sermon and been at church and been with God's people. and We had Russell taught a fantastic, convicting Sunday school lesson about abiding in Christ. But you could follow me around today with a camera, and you could take snapshots of me sinning, and would I look like a very good Christian? Probably not. But hopefully, if you followed me around with a video camera, and you saw the whole of my day, not just snapshots of it, but if you had a record of the whole, then what you hopefully see is someone who's committed to following Jesus Christ as Lord. So I think as Christians, we have to remember, don't think of yourself as the worst moments that you have. Think of, think of the whole. Think of what's on the tape, because the tape will show that your life is heading, if you're a Christian, that, and if you look at your life, that your life is heading in a certain trajectory, and that you are becoming more and more like Christ, even if you have a bad day or a bad week, okay? Even if sin has is, is got you weighed down, you know, remember, that's why Jesus had to come, isn't it? 
So we always want to turn and trust in Him and not be defined by those awful moments of sin in our life, but to look at how the whole is going, to look at the trajectory. And on the whole, true Christians, again, we can look at our lives and see that our lives line up with our confession that Jesus is Lord. And if they don't, we need to repent and we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord. Well, in this church in Corinth, they want proof. Paul's telling them all these things. Paul's giving them the Word of God. Paul's giving them the true gospel. Paul's brought Christ to them. Paul's established the church. But false teachers have come in that have deceived them. And now when Paul writes to them, they say to him, we want proof that you're really the authority because we sure like the way these guys talk and we sure like the way these other guys dress and these other guys seem to have a really good pedigree and they even know how to speak Hebrew and read the Bible in the Old Testament. All these things. Are you really the authority? And Paul has come in and said, oh, they look like Hebrews? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. They come in and they tell you that they uh, love Christ. I love him more. And here's how I've suffered for Jesus. Paul's been proving who he is to them. Backing up his claim with evidence. And so he tells them in chapter 13, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. In verse 1 he says, every charge must be established, proved, by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Not an interesting thing to say in this chapter as it begins. And uh, I wondered, why is he talking about two or three witnesses right here and mentioning that he's coming for the third time? And so I had to go to the commentaries, and what the commentaries taught me was Paul's probably saying, each of my three visits is a witness against you. Alternatively, he could be saying, everything must be proved by, by three witnesses, two or three witnesses, and I, I don't have any doubt that there are going to be witnesses that will come forward. There is going to be evidence of how you've been acting. I'm going to be able to understand and prove what's been going on in the church. And I'm coming to you, and he's coming to see who they are. Look at what he says in verse 2. I warned those who sinned before, and all the others. I warned them now while absent, as though I was present on my second visit. He says, I've warned you once, I've warned you twice, I'm warning you again, just like I warned you when I was with you last time, that when I come again, I will not spare them. Those who are sinning will not be spared. And look what he says. Here's how we know they were seeking proof. Look at verse 3. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul's power, if you follow his logic here, uh, and sometimes those sentences that Paul writes like that, they, they, get, they kind of turn us around a little bit. But what Paul's saying is that his power is God's power. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by God's power, Paul will exercise power, but it will not be his own. They want proof. He's about to come and prove it to them. They should consider his words a warning. They will not be spared. That's frightening language. And there are plenty of places where you can look in Scripture where people ignored God's words and they ignored his warnings. And what happened? Let's think about those who 
continually reject the authority of God. They are not spared. They are destroyed. What happened to Adam and Eve? What was the, what was the word? For the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Of course, God was merciful to them. They didn't die right there. He made skins for them, but where they, they were kicked out of the garden and they began the process of dying that very day. We can think about the children of Israel. We can think about Korah. And they began to grumble against Moses and Aaron. Here were Korah and his family, and they were, they were, they were the, some of the leaders in Israel. They were the ones attending to the temple. And here they began to grumble against the Lord's messenger, Moses, the one who was giving them the words of God. They were grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Moses is distraught over it, but what does God do? Opens up the ground, and there go Korah and all those that would rebel with him. They were warned, and they did not heed the warning. We can think about those who were alive at the time of Noah, the people of Israel, Ananias and Sapphira, There is a proof of God's authority that we don't want any part of. And Paul says if they want proof, they will get it. And we we say, well, how, how, how do I avoid, how can I be spared? How do I avoid that? Be obedient. Listen to the word of God. God's words are here to give you a blessing. They're not to hurt you, they're to help you. The the God's words show his love to us. And His very words are a warning. He's saying, look, I created you. I know how life ought to work. I've, I've, uh, so to speak, uh, drafted up the blueprint. I know how everything is supposed to work out. And if you will ignore this, things are going to go badly for you. But if you will obey, you will thrive and you will flourish. Well, they want proof from Paul. Are your words just big talk? Are your warnings just big talk? He says, don't be... Don't be fooled. I'm coming, and when I come, I'm coming with the power of God. Now, I'm weak, but just as Jesus laid in the tomb, and by God's power he was raised, when I come, by God's power I will judge. I will call it like I see it. Paul is going to come with the authority of an apostle when he comes to see them. And look at verse 5. Paul wants proof too. They want proof from Paul. Paul wants proof from them. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That's a great verse to underline. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless you indeed uh, fail to meet the test? He says in verse 6, I hope you will find out that we've not failed the test. He says, I hope you'll find out that we are doing right. But we pray to God. Notice what he says in this verse. He says two things here. Notice, we pray to God. I'm praying for you that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test. Not that we would be proved righteous. But that you may do what is right. Though it may seem even that we have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Paul says our actions are right. It may seem to you that they're not right. This may seem harsh, but our actions are right. We're here for the truth. For for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Paul's saying we want you to be built up. We're willing to spend ourselves that you might be built up. Your restoration is what we pray for. 
Paul's aim is restoration. He says in verse 10, For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. Paul here is explicit about his authority. He's demonstrating his authority. He says, the Lord has given me authority. Now, what is the purpose of the authority that God has given him? Is it so he can run in there and into their church and just round up everybody who's being sinful and who is, who is uh, 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 preaching a false gospel or following false teachers and, and then take them out? No, look at what his, his authority is given for. I don't want to have to be severe in the use of the authority the Lord's given me for building up and not tearing down. Paul's ultimate aim is for the church's good. Even if that means some people were going to be put out of the fellowship until they could come back in and be restored, Paul was going to have to come in and do what needed to be done. I think a lot of times in the church and even in our faith and in our life, we are afraid of that, aren't we? We look at our life and we know what needs to be done. If I said to you, well, what's keeping you from being able to follow the Lord 100% with your whole life and your whole heart? What's keeping you from loving your neighbor? What's keeping you from being the husband or the wife that you need to be? What is, what is the friendship or the relationship that's standing in the way of you being able to, to, to live that vibrant Christian life that you want to live? I bet every single one of us could point to something, couldn't we? Every one of us could say, well, I'll tell you, the, the biggest struggle I have or the biggest uh, sin in my life or the biggest uh, adversary I'm facing right now is this, this, or this. We could all do that. And Paul's coming into this church with this attitude saying, we're going to do what needs to be done for building up and not tearing down. What if we had that same attitude about our, even our own life, even as even members of this church? If you were to take your life of faith out to the proving ground there on the 59 football fields, uh, <laughs> so to speak, uh, figuratively, and you were to put your life of faith through the paces, would you find faith? Would you find obedience? Would you test yourself, examine yourself, and find that Jesus is Lord? Which Paul's saying what it looks like here. He's, he's going to say, uh, test yourself, examine whether you're in the faith. What does it mean to be in the faith? It means that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. That you have a new heart that desires new things. In the book of Galatians, it talks about it like this, that there's a fruit of that Spirit. There's a, a, a way that you can have evidence that Christ lives in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or do you fail the test? Is your life submitted to the Spirit? Or are you rebelling against God's authority? There's a danger in your life and a danger in the church. A danger that we're always, here's the problem. I think it's just the way that we're hardwired as sinners. Is that we're always kicking against submission. There's always a danger that you're going to be unwilling to learn. That you're not going to be teachable. Because sometimes we want the things of God, but we want them the way that we want them. Not the way that he's wanting to give them to us. But notice Paul's prayer for the people. My prayer is that you would not do wrong, but that you would do right. And what does the right for them, what does rightness, righteousness look like? What does it look like in my life and your life? I think sometimes we think, oh, it looks like me doing this and me doing this and me doing this. 
but it really is something different than that. It's really a posture. He's, he's not talking about something you're doing. He's talking about first a, a, a posture. He says our aim is that you would be restored. What does the restoration look like that Paul's aiming at in this whole lapse from, from chapter 10 all the way to the end of chapter 13? He says, I'm aiming for your restoration. What is the restoration that he's been talking about this whole time? He's saying, I'm the authority and you are outside the authority. What does restoration look like? You get back under the authority. You know, we, we tend to think, well, I, I, if I do this, it'll fix it. If I do this, it'll fix it. Paul's talking about a posture here. If you would just think my posture needs to be, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to obey the, the Lord. We, didn't we talk about something so simple in Sunday school, the Gospel Project, of John chapter 15? He made it real simple, didn't it? Abide in me. <laughs> you know, that's ultimate submission, isn't it? Abide in me. Abide in me. Keep my commands. And my commands, I'm telling you, are to love one another. Wow. Are we submitted to obey that command? And if our, if our aim is not to love God and love people, but to love ourselves and to love our things and to love our future and our security and all these different things, we're outside the authority. Paul's aim for his church was to be under the authority. So I've given two illustrations, I think, already that I've already given before in sermons, but I don't even know if people remember my sermons after they walk out of the building. So I want to give you <laughs> the illustration I've been giving you again. <clears throat> now, of course, they tell us that in preaching class. You know, they actually tell you that. They say in preaching class, no one's going to remember anything you say. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Think of all the preachers you've ever had. Think of your favorite youth minister. Gunnar, do you remember your favorite youth minister? Okay, do you remember anything he said? <laughs> but you really like the guy. Yeah, I can remember maybe a few things. My, like the one thing I can remember my youth minister said to me was one time I'd get, gotten up and given a talk, and he said, that would have been a better talk if you hadn't brought notes up. That's the only thing I can remember him saying, and so I've always thought about that when I give a talk. It's like, well, Ron wouldn't like this. I'm bringing notes still after all these years. But so in preaching, a lot of times it's not what's said, but it's the impression that's created. Like the Holy Spirit does something, and hopefully, as I make an argument from the text, there's an impression created in your heart that you need to submit yourself to the authority of God. This sermon is very basic in that way. You can hear thousands of sermons, and you might not can remember any of them, but they have a cumulative effect of making you more like Christ. It's a strange thing, isn't it? And hopefully you're writing and taking notes and things like that. Maybe you remember a few things. My, my preacher, Brother Jimmy, the one thing I remember him saying that he would say a lot of times, say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words break my heart. And I've always remembered that's one of those, you just, there's a few things that you never forget, you know, and that's always kind of guided me. He's like, be careful what you say, because you really hurt somebody. So here's all that to say. I'm going to give you another illustration I've already given you before. <laughs> and y'all don't even sound like you're awake anyway. So is anybody awake out there? Okay, okay. So just listening. You're just very quiet. You're scaring me. Okay. <clears throat> so y'all remember uh, Roger Staubach, the greatest cowboy that ever played. Um, so he leads the Cowboys to Super Bowl victory in 1971. And at that time, he admitted that he had a really tough time playing for Coach Landry. Because if you know anything about Coach Landry, he, he micromanaged that team in every way. And you know, uh, they just kind of were coaching in a, a different way at that time in the, other, in, in the NFL. Whereas if you played for most NFL coaches, 
they would send the quarterback out there. He would read the defense, or he would, he would know how things were going, and he would call uh, the play. The quarterback would call the play, like Terry Bradshaw's calling his own play. And yet, Tom Landry wouldn't let Roger Staubach call his own play. So he didn't like that. Roger didn't like that. And th- there was even one point where, where Coach Landry, it was almost like he just thought, it doesn't matter who's playing quarterback in my system, we're going to do okay. And you, you remember, I can't remember who, the, who it was, but at one point, Landry was just running two quarterbacks in every other play. Who was the other quarterback? Do you all remember who that was? Craig Morton? And he, so he would run Roger and Craig Morton back every other play just so he could watch it and tell him what play to run in and, and call the play. Well, this really bothered Roger. Like this guy's like, I won a Heisman Trophy and I, I called my own plays to do that. So I, I really think I, you know, I could probably call plays for the Dallas Cowboys. Tom Landry says, no, I'm calling the plays for the Dallas Cowboys. So when it was time for Roger uh, to, to run the play, Tom Landry said when to pass, he said when to run, and only in very certain circumstances would he allow Roger to change the play. And Roger said, I knew he was a genius mind, but my pride said I should be able to run my own team. And they said Roger had a decision to make. Would he allow pride to rule his life? Would he ignore his coach? Would he make himself the star? Or would he listen to the coach and do what the coach wanted? And Roger said, when I faced up to the issue of obedience, once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. Super Bowl rings. You know, and for us, that, that's the restoration, isn't it? That's what, that's what Paul's talking about here. That we could take for our... It, every Christian... You know, it would, be, it would be a crazy idea for a Christian to say, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is not the Lord. It's just odd to us even that idea. Uh, it's the idea of someone claiming Christ, rejecting his lordship. It would be unthinkable for us to not want to do what Tom Landry told us to do if we were on his team. But the rest of the culture, the rest of the NFL was saying to the quarterbacks, you call your own plays. You're the one that knows what's going on. You're the one who can look out and see what needs to be done. And isn't the culture telling you that right now too? Isn't the culture saying, you're number one, you need to call the shots, you need to call the plays in your life, and we're coming in here with a very specific instruction saying, no, you don't get to call your own plays. You have a playbook right here, and the Lord's going to call the plays in your life. And the question is, are you going to obey or not? The question is, are you going to be restored when you claimed Christ, you said Jesus is Lord. Have you wandered away from that? Do you need to be restored? Because what happens when your posture of obedience is restored? I imagine what comes along with that, and I can probably tell you this is true because I've experienced it many times in my life, the joy of salvation is restored as well. Notice how Paul closes out the letter, verse 11. He seems to have in mind that harmony and fulfillment and victory that we read about there in that illustration with Roger Staubach. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Mentions restoration again. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. I still don't really know what that holy kiss is, and I'm glad we don't do that during the greeting time, but that would be weird. 
But apparently back then in the culture, they did something, I don't know how they did, if they did that with their hands or they actually kissed each other. But then he says in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now if you look at verses 11 and 12, I count six commands there. Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree, live in peace, and greet one another. How is it possible for us to have that kind of life where we're rejoicing and we're restoring and we're comforting and we're agreeing and we're living peacefully and we're fellowshipping? Well, I think Paul's saying that if we'll have that restoration of listening to God's authority and submitting to Him, then we will have that kind of life. Because those who reject Christ don't reject His Lordship. Rather, our lives prove that He is Lord. Paul didn't know you. I'm sure in Paul's wildest imagination, he could not imagine the life you live. Can you imagine if you showed the Apostle Paul a cell phone, an iPhone? I mean, I can't even imagine if my grandpa would have saw an iPhone. I bet that would have just blown his mind that you could have such a thing in your pocket. So many things about our life are different, right? We stand between two worlds, don't we? We have this world that we live in here and this world of the text that we're reading about today. And they're quite different worlds. But I know this, there's some similar things. I know Paul wants the same thing for you that he wanted for this church here. Joy, restoration, comfort, agreement, peace, and fellowship. How do we have that? Well, those who claim Christ don't reject his lordship. We embrace it. And our lives then prove that he is Lord. That starts at your salvation. It continues on. Just as Paul was going to return to Corinth one day with his authority, do you know Jesus one day will return to judge the righteous and the unrighteous? When Paul returned, he wanted to find people faithful. He wanted them to be doing what was right. Jesus said then there was a certain judge who lived in a city, and this judge didn't fear God, and he didn't respect man. And there was a widow that lived in that very city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. And the judge for a while refused the lady. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. It's a great parable. It's a great promise for us, isn't it? Don't quit seeking after God. But then he says this at the very end of the parable, nevertheless. And when you see nevertheless, it just, you can just say, despite this, That's a good way to remember how to read that because that's kind of a weird phrase, kind of an old phrase. But despite this, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? How will you be found today? How will God be found? I think this parable tells us God is always going to be found faithful. God is better than that unrighteous judge. He's always looking out for his children. He's always looking out for justice. He's always defeating his adversaries. He will always prove faithful. If the unrighteous judge did what was right, don't you think God will do it even more? 
But how will you be found? When Jesus returns, will you be found faithful? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Those who claim Christ don't reject his lordship. Rather, their lives prove that he is Lord.